Father, we praise you that your word is living and active. We praise you that we can find life in these words. So we pray tonight that you would feed us. Help us to drink the water, the living water that we find here, so that we are strengthened for our lives to live in your world, trusting in Jesus, following him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not all suffering is worth it. When I was a student, I was on holiday in South Africa and I visited a beach somewhere on the garden route on the southern coast of South Africa. And we were told the stories of various shark attacks that had taken place on one of the beaches. Uh, One year there was a particular shark that had several victims. Victim number four was a surfer who was badly injured but managed to make it back to shore and after a lengthy spell in hospital recovered from his injuries. And you might think that this would make victim number four think twice before heading back in the water. But that's exactly what victim number four did. And at the same beach he became victim number seven. And this time, sadly, he died. Then uh, what about the story of uh, Kenneth Charles Barger of North Carolina, who on the night of the 21st of December 1992 was woken in the night by his phone ringing. Instead of picking up the phone, however, in the confusion and sleepiness of the middle of the night, he picked up his Smith & Weston .38 special that he always kept by his bed, and he shot himself in the head. Now those are surely examples of crazy, needless, unnecessary suffering. It didn't have to be like that, we say afterwards. It could so easily have been avoided. But change the scene to something rather more serious. I wonder if you're familiar with the case of Leah Sharibu, who is a 15-year-old schoolgirl currently being held hostage by Boko Haram in Nigeria. All of her uh, friends who were captured with her have been released months ago. But for the past eight months or so, she's been uh, held alone because she refuses to renounce her faith in Jesus and become a Muslim, which is what her captors demand that she do to be released. The latest news is that her captors have set a deadline in October for various demands to be met or they will execute her, as they have executed other captives in recent months. Now, we should be praying for her and for that situation. But I guess some people will be asking, when they hear about that, well, isn't that kind of suffering a little bit crazy too? Wouldn't it be easier just to say what the captives want to hear and be released? Plenty of people would no doubt say they've got great sympathy for her situation, but she's ultimately misguided. Well, closer to home, what about a young person who is known for being a member of their school Christian union and deals with sarcastic comments in the lunch queue every time she goes? What about a friend of mine called Jeff who was a trader in the city and as he disappeared off one lunchtime to a lunchtime talk in one of the city churches, his boss caught him and he made all his colleagues stop and listen. 
And he said in a loud voice in front of everyone, Jeff's off to see the God Squad. Do you want to say a prayer for us, Jeff, before you go? What about the doctor who was always just a little bit too open with his, uh, about his faith with, with uh, patients and colleagues? You know, he never did anything that would earn him a proper disciplinary offence or break the rules properly about what he can do in the workplace. But they didn't like it. So the HR department went through all the records of his work with a fine-tooth comb so they could find something amiss with which to discipline him and get him fired. Are these just further examples of needless, crazy suffering? Would these people do better to keep their heads well below the parapet and enjoy an easier life? Turn it around the other way. I wonder if you've ever thought about this. What would you be prepared to go to prison for? Assuming it's not because you've committed some kind of obvious crime. Is there anything that you would be prepared to suffer injustice for? In this letter to the Ephesians we've seen so far, Paul has been setting out God's cosmic plan for the universe and for all human beings. And he's shown how the universe is God-centred. It's not centred around you or me. And his plan for the universe is Christ-centred. He is the main actor in this extraordinary drama. We've seen it's not down to you or me to save ourselves, to accomplish this plan for ourselves, because naturally we are dead. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 2. It's all down to what God has done in Christ, through his death, the shedding of his blood for us, and then raising him up, and amazingly raising us up with him, including us in this plan when we don't deserve anything. And then more than that, when God chooses how he's going to work out his plan in the world right here and right now, what does he choose? What does he use? He chooses the church. He says, church, you are going to be how I'm going to build my kingdom. You are going to be how people see a snapshot of what will one day be true of the whole universe. All people, all things united under one head, Jesus Christ. And it starts now in the church. And having established that in the first two chapters, Paul's about to break into this wonderful prayer that is the second half of Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll come to it next week. And look at verse 1. He's all set to go. For this reason, he says, I, Paul, and, and then you can see, if you go to verse 14, he says again, for this reason. So he was about to, 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 to go into verse uh, 14 and pray that, but then look at what he says. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. And it's almost as if he thinks to himself, oh, hang on, before I pray, I'm going to have to uh, explain this a bit more. So he breaks off in the middle of the sentence in verse 1. And why does he do that? Because after all this talk of cosmic plans and victory over, over death, the last thing we expect Paul to say is, by the way, I'm in prison. You know, if you're looking for a general to lead you into battle, or a prime minister or a president to lead your country, or a chief executive to lead your company, you don't go for the person who's been to prison. That would disqualify you. More than that, you don't go for anything that looks weak. And perhaps then, even more than now, 
being in prison, looked very weak and feeble indeed. So, Paul, why are you in prison? What are you suffering for? Is it worth it or is it crazy, needless, stupid suffering? Well, there's two things to see in response to that question. First of all, in verses 2 to 7, it is worth suffering for the gospel. It is worth suffering for the gospel. Why am I suffering, says Paul? Well, because of the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, verse 2. The mystery made known to him by revelation, as he's already written, uh, referring presumably to to chapters 1 and 2 in the letter. Mystery is a term for the gospel, the good news. It's a a term that, that Paul sometimes uses. When we hear mystery, we think... Uh, Agatha Christie or something like that, don't we? We think a puzzle that needs to be solved. You know, who, who was Jack the Ripper? Well, we don't know. We probably will never know. It's a mystery. But when the Bible talks about mysteries, it, it always talks about them being in the context of something secret being made known. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Verse 3, a mystery made known to him by revelation. And we heard his account of that at the beginning of it in in uh, Acts, in the first reading. Verse 4, it is the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. It was secret, but now it's public. And what is that mystery? Well, look look what he says, verse 6. It is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And the thing is, you might say, well, what, what exactly is new about that? Because it's always been God's intention to include the nations the Gentiles and his plans for the world. You know, you remember right back at the beginning in, in, the, in, the, in Genesis, in the promises to Abraham in chapter 12, he says to Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. That's always been the plan. And yet what was new, what was deeply challenging to God's people when Jesus came, was the idea that now that Jesus had come, everyone could relate to God on the same terms. It's about faith in Jesus. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about some people being better than others because they have the law and they keep the law and they're doing better on the ladder of law-keeping. It's saying that everyone's on the same terms. That is what this gospel brings about. That is why Paul is prepared to suffer. And we'll see in a minute that Paul thinks the church is worth suffering for. But before that, he's making it clear that he thinks the gospel itself is worth suffering for because the gospel creates the church. And that's actually something that's really important for us to grasp and understand because sometimes people think it's the other way around, that the church creates the gospel, that the church is responsible for determining what the message is that is brought to the world. And if the church decides that the message needs to change due to prevailing cultural trends or whatever it is, then, well, change the message because the church is in charge. But Paul is clear it's the other way around. The gospel message shapes the church. That's why he calls himself a servant of the gospel. Do you, see, do you see which way around it is? He's saying, I'm the servant of the gospel. It's not the gospel serves me and my purposes, and I choose the message according to what I want to achieve. 
No, no, I, I must just listen to the message and pass it on. I am its servant. Verse 7. So you've got to have the doctrine, you've got to have the teaching, the gospel message. Then you've got to let that doctrine shape the kind of church that you are. The message shapes the community. And that means whatever your message is will shape the community that you are. So if you think the gospel message is about doing good things to make God accept you, which is what so many people think the the Christian message is, well, what will happen? You will create a community of hypocrisy and competitive judgmentalism, a place of cliques and inner circles. Oh, no, no, people like you can't join here because, you, you know, you're not good enough. That's what that kind of gospel message does. What you believe about the gospel will shape the kind of community you are. And, and that is what Paul is saying about the gospel revealed to him by God. It is a gospel that says everyone can now relate to God on the same terms. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, young or old, the gospel creates a community where the only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus. So there are a couple of questions we need to ask ourselves as we reflect on this. The first is, is this the gospel that we are sharing and proclaiming? It's very easy to think of the gospel message as something that's, that's purely about me and God. I have sinned, I deserve judgment, Jesus died so I can go to heaven, so I need to put my trust in Jesus. And that's true as far as it goes, but it's not the full gospel message that Paul says it's worth suffering for. He says it's about a community and the shock And the wonder is how all types of people, whoever we are, whatever our background, all can be included on the same terms by simply trusting Jesus. If you're not trusting Jesus, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, well, maybe that news is new to you. And It's it's one of the big things we've been seeing in Ephesians. It was there in chapter 2 as well. Uh, But as I've been reflecting on this more, it, it seems to me that the shock for the church in the West in 2018 It's not actually that Gentiles get to be in God's people on the same terms as Jewish believers in Jesus. That was the big shock 2,000 years ago, that Gentiles could come in on the same terms as the Jews who believed in Jesus. Actually, it's almost now the other way around, isn't it, if you think about it? That many of us who are Gentile believers, Gentiles and non-Jews, many of us need to remember that actually Jewish people can be included in the church too, by trusting Jesus, and they need to do that too, just as much as our Gentile friends and neighbours. And maybe just in this part of North London, that's something we need to reflect on and make sure that, you know, in appropriate, loving ways, we are bringing the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. And that the gospel that we bring has the extraordinary news that all types of people are invited. All types of people can be included on the same terms by trusting Jesus. And then even more than that, well, are we living this out in the way that we do church? Are we letting this gospel shape our relationships? Are we, are we behaving not like a collection of customers or consumers who are concerned most of all with our rights and what we are getting out of this experience, but rather like a family where everyone matters and other people's interests come before our own? We saw last time how Jesus' death brought down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. 
and that means there are to be no barriers in God's people now. So is there a barrier between those perhaps who are married and those who are single? Is there a barrier between those who are young and those who are old? You know, it's it's easy to hang out with people who are like us in the same stage of life. So if if you're married, you've got a family, when you're planning a meal, well, invite some single people. Single, see if you can enable a married couple to go out sometime or whatever it might be. But invite the person that an outsider would be surprised to see in your house, in your life. You're thinking, what on earth are you two doing together? How on earth can you possibly be looking to hang out together and spend time together? That's not normal, that's weird. Well, that's because we're believers in Jesus. And that, that can be hard, and it can take us out of our comfort zone. But what is Paul teaching us here? He's saying it's worth suffering for the gospel, to ensure the gospel is lived out and proclaimed. And when Paul says suffering for the gospel, he means going to prison. Which I think puts the things that we might struggle with um, about living this out into, into perspective, doesn't it? So it's worth suffering for the gospel. And then secondly, from verses 8 to 13, it's worth suffering for the church. It's worth suffering for the church. Paul says he's been given grace to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, the manifold wisdom of God. What is this manifold wisdom of God? Well, it's not what we might expect. He says he wants the manifold wisdom of God to be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. If you look in verse 10, what does he mean by that? Well, you can tell from other places that that Paul talks about him that the rulers and authorities are God's spiritual enemies. Devil, Satan would be the chief example. And Paul is talking about how how God displays his wisdom according to his eternal purpose in Christ, how he displays that to his enemies. In other words, how he shows his enemies his plan for them and for the universe, how he shows his enemies that they cannot win, that they've already lost, that Jesus has already defeated them, that one day they will be completely and utterly destroyed forever, that that day is coming soon that one day everything will be submitted to Christ and united under his rule. So how does God show the the spiritual rulers and authorities that their days are numbered? Well, you know, if I were God, I think I'd, you know, what would you do? I think I'd do something like this. You know, you take the night sky, get some shooting stars or something, and you you write in the sky, big letters, you can't win. Jesus is the boss, give up now. You know, it has to be something big and grand and impressive. But that isn't what God does, is it? He doesn't write big messages in the sky. He says, look at the church. We say, really? Are you sure? The church? You know, there's a story about a bishop who used to go around visiting churches and one day he complained that everywhere the Apostle Paul went, there was a riot. But everywhere I go, they serve tea. You know, on the surface of things, the church looks so underwhelming. But he's saying, look, 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 look at the people. That's the church. Look at how they are united now under Christ. Look at Jews and Gentiles united. Look at 
people of all kinds of different backgrounds brought together, rich and poor, black, white, mixed race, everything in between, educated and few qualifications. Verse 12, if you look, everyone now approaches God on the same footing. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, we approach God with freedom and confidence together in him and through faith in him. The church shows that the gospel is working. The church shows that God's great plan to unite people under Christ, chapter 1, verse 10, is going to succeed because it's happening now. So, you know, think, think, what, what do so many people think of when they think of the church? They think it's just a hangover from the past. You know, it's just a matter of time before it disappears into obscurity. The papers love the headlines. They can track the diminishing numbers. Look, guys, look. Look at the trajectory. Look where we're heading. It's all going to disappear, they're saying. But Paul is saying, no, it's, it's not a hangover from the past. It's a taste of the future. It's the architect scale model. Do you remember if, we, if you were here a few weeks ago? You're meant to be able to look at the church and see what the future's going to be like. All kinds of people united under Jesus. Do you remember, if you don't like church, therefore, you're going to hate heaven. That's the point, isn't it? Which means the best is yet to come for God's people and for the world. So all of this tells us why church is important, but it also tells us why it can be hard. Because we're in a spiritual battle, do you see? So we'll hear more about that at the end of chapter 6. But the fact is, the very existence of the church is a testimony to God's enemies that they cannot win. And they don't like that. And that means the devil will do everything he can to mess this up. To destroy unity. To keep us from meeting together. To keep us from encouraging each other. Maybe you've come across C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, where a senior devil, Screwtape, writes to his apprentice nephew, Wormwood, on how to be a good devil. And in one of the letters, Screwtape instructs Wormwood on how to keep his patient away from church. His patient is the kind of subject of his devilish schemes to kind of um, uh, to attack. So what does he say to Wormwood? He says, well, you mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and one only since he was converted and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are about? Why have I no report on the causes of his fidelity, his faithfulness to the local church? Do you realise that Unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing. Surely you know that if a person can't be cured of church going, the best, the next best thing is to send them all over the city looking for the church that suits them until they become a taster or connoisseur of churches. Do you see what the devil is trying to do? What would you do if you were the devil? What would you put in place to ensure that this vision for the church in Ephesians chapter 3 failed miserably? Would you ensure that there were cliques? That there were arguments over personal preference about the style and way things should be done? 
Ensure that there are people falling out with one another because they've lost sight of the gospel and what actually matters. Ensure that there are people refusing to forgive one another. See, a church that looks like that won't cause the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms to marvel at God's wisdom, but to mock. On that Friday afternoon, I was uh, doing some work, and Zachary shouted, my son, Zachary shouted to me from the next room, Daddy, dividing is the easiest thing in the world. Now, he was talking about maths. And I think he'll find that it gets a lot harder. But as I was thinking about these verses, well, that's exactly right, isn't it? You know, dividing is the easiest thing in the world. Anybody can divide. We can all fall out with each other. It's totally straightforward. We find it very, very easy indeed. But uniting a people, despite our differences, despite our sin, despite our backgrounds, despite all the things that might drive us apart, uniting a people under one head takes the manifold wisdom of God revealed in Christ. That is why Paul is prepared to suffer for the gospel and to suffer for the church. Is this kind of suffering crazy and needless and avoidable? Well, if you are still looking into Christian things, this might all still look like it goes in the crazy category. But just suppose for a moment that this is true, that God has a plan for the universe and the gospel, the good news, proclaims that plan. And the church lives out that plan here and now. Paul claims that is worth suffering for because ultimately there's nothing more important if this is true. So he finishes in verse 14 by saying, don't be discouraged by my sufferings. And we need to say that to each other. See, the issue for us today on the front line, wherever that is for us, day to day, week to week, the issue is not whether we've got the right techniques or the right courses to invite people on or the right words to say when we're asked a question. The issue really is far more simple than that. It's simply, will we be brave? See, we need wisdom and we need courage to do that in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, in our schools. To know when and how to speak, when and how to take the opportunities that are given to us, when that would be unwise, when that would be the best thing we could do. We need each other to encourage each other to do this together. It's part of what it means to be the church, isn't it? It's why we need each other. It's why we can't be a Christian by ourselves, because we need to work these things out to see what it looks like to do this in everyday life. We need each other to do that. Let's make sure that the main reason people are not hearing about Jesus isn't that we don't think this matters enough to put ourselves out there and to put ourselves and our reputations and our friendships on the line. That can't be the reason that our friends and neighbours and families and colleagues don't hear about Jesus. It's worth suffering for the gospel. 
It's worth suffering for the church. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled as we think of what Paul was prepared to go through for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church. And we think of the things we struggle with, the fears we have on a day-to-day basis, living out our faith in different contexts. Father, would we grasp afresh the, the glory of the gospel? and of the church that it creates. Please would you help us to remember these things as we go into this week, as we go onto the front line. Give us courage and boldness to know how we can share this good news with those we come across. Father, we believe that it's worth it, so give us, please, the opportunities and help us to see those opportunities, to grasp them when we're given them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.